My name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about one of the greatest action filmmakers ever, Yoon Woping. You know, in the 2000s, seemingly every action movie was promoted as being from the fight choreographer behind Kill Bill, The Matrix, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He also lent his talents to such high-profile U.S. releases as Kung Fu Hustle, The Forbidden Kingdom, Fearless, The Grandmaster, and Unleashed. And for the love of all that is sacred, please, if you meet him in the street, do not ask him about those movies. <laughs> there is a Lincoln Center interview with him where he came and like took some award and they screened a bunch of his films and they even say during the Q&A please don't ask him about the American films <laughs> like he's probably answered over and over and over again questions about those films and they're which, nowhere near his best work no and I think that's why he looks at them and he's like this is what people will mostly remember me by worldwide is this like the matrix so good, amazing movie, great action choreography compared to what he was doing 25 years before, baby time. <laughs> there is a category at the Hong Kong Film Awards for best action choreography, which is something that would be unthinkable at the Oscars. But, you know, the thing is, with some of the movies that Yuan Wu-Ping worked on, he really almost rises to the level of co-author. I mean, Once Upon a Time in China 2 is almost as much a Yuan Wu-Ping movie as it is a Choi Hark movie. Absolutely. When he's choreographing things, like a lot of Hong Kong productions, usually the action choreographer, especially if they have a particular stature, they not only shoot the action scenes, they also control the camera on the action scenes, and they edit the action scenes. So it is completely their baby. And if there's a lot of those in a movie, then they they are essentially the co-director of the films. And when I think of Yuan Wu-Ping, I mean, look, I'm no expert. I'm no I'm no guy who can really tell you no, uh, the ins either. and outs of martial arts choreography. But I do know just the general sense that I get, the general mm. vibe. And when I think of Yuan Wu-Ping, there are a couple of people who are just really, were real, real trendsetters in the golden age of Hong Kong action movies. You know, Bruce Lee had a particular style. The Shaw Brothers as well, and the, the artists associated with them. And I think of him as being the guy who came after them, who really turned everything on its head and created a much more kind of acrobatic, free-flowing, uh, anything-goes martial arts style. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, it could be argued that there were a lot of people working around him that were also doing that kind of stuff that before he directed his big motion pictures that we'll talk about in a little while that they were kind of moving towards there mm -hmm. but he's the one that I feel kind of synthesized all of those things that he is not only a great choreographer he is a great filmmaker in that he understands how to show the audience this kind of stuff in a very concrete way that is easy to understand that makes the impossible possible in a way that you couldn't imagine anyone would be able to execute. I've seen him talk about in interviews that he's always thinking about action and he's a very reactive guy in the sense that he sees what people are doing and he tries to either move beyond it or find a reflective way to approach it and do something that is in the other direction but is also building upon it. Well, Bruce Lee died just when he was breaking out. It's hard to imagine Bruce Lee adapting with the times. He was a purist. He believed very strongly in a very minimalist fighting style, a very direct and strong fighting style. But somebody like Yuan Wu-Ping, you know, he came along at a time when, like, the Chinese opera, the Peking opera, ended just as this whole generation of people were coming out of it. And so they all created, they, they all found jobs in the Hong Kong film industry instead as stuntmen, because that was the closest thing to a lateral skill. Yuan Wu-Ping is somebody who was able to harm 
harness the particular skill sets of those people into creating this this style that was sort of like the polar opposite of Bruce Lee's, you know? If you want to see what the Bruce Lee style would look like, choreographed by Yuwo Pig, just uh, turn on a little film called Game of Death 2, which he choreographed. I love Game of Death 2 because... <laughs> it's as far as Bruce Lee as you can get. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like, everyone, everyone likes Bruce Lee, but people only like Bruce Lee's style if Bruce Lee's doing it. Mm. <laughs> you know, if he's not actually there alive to do it, they want to see something with a little more bells and whistles. <laughs> yeah, and that's what you get in Game of Death 2. <laughs> Yuwo Ping, he was working alongside Bruce Lee, and it's interesting that he never kind of went into imitating his style. Like you mentioned, he grew up up in the Peking opera milieu that he was trained by his dad, Simon Yun, but he wasn't technically in a Peking opera school. And I've seen him say in interviews that his dad was very tough, like a lot of those teachers were, but he was not as tough as the teachers that Sammo and Jackie Chan had, in that while they would maybe get corporal punishment, they were not hit on the head with a stick until they bled. Also, I I get the sense that Yuan Wu-Ping came from not quite the destitution and poverty that Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung did. So, you know, when we talk about Yuan Wu-Ping, we're talking about a whole dynasty. He's merely the most famous member of this family of choreographers and martial artists. The Jung Bros. Uh, his father, uh, who you mentioned, was Yun, Su- was Yun Su Tin, better known here as Simon Yun. Fans of kung fu movies will know that he was the master in Jackie Chan's breakout hit, Drunken Master. Directed by Yu Wuping. He also was the father of 11 children. That's a very busy man. Yuan Wuping trained, as you said, in Peking Opera. Through his father's connections, I think, he appeared in a number of films. Beginning in the 1960s, he was in his father worked as a choreographer on the Wong Fei Hung series. He had a role as well in the Wong Fei Hung series. That's right. And that was a series of almost 100 movies made in the 50s and 60s in Hong Kong, which were basically ground zero of Hong Kong martial arts movies. Wong Fei Hung was this famous Chinese herbalist and folk hero, and these were very low budget, kind of primitive movies about his exploits. Well, the Wong Fei Hung films, they like to talk about that they kind of figured out martial arts choreography in the evolution of them, that it started very much like early Hollywood pictures where it's like, all right, get the stuntmen, have them fight. And then it moved on to, okay, let's choreograph stuff that the actors themselves were choreographing it at first. And then they slowly figured out, oh, what can we do as camera moves? And this series lasted a long time. And it's a little bit unfortunate that it's not very available either. I've never seen any of them, which is, it's too bad. You know, I mean, they were very popular in Hong Kong. I've only seen the first part and that's because someone from the Hong Kong Film Archives brought it to Toronto and screened it. Yeah. And so as a kid, Yu Ping worked with his family, uh, Peking Opera, and like Will mentioned, in films as well. He said that he would just take whatever job was offered to him. Eventually, film became the more financially viable thing. And because he was learning the ropes, appearing as extras, and even stuff like Shaw Brothers films, you can see him show up in the anonymous heroes as like just a goon that shows up for a while. He is you know, a random Kung Fu student in The One-Armed Swordsman from 1968, which was one of the moments where the genre really came of age. His first credit as a choreographer was on a 1971 movie called The Mad Killer, which was directed by Eng Si Yoon. Eng Si Yoon was a sort of Roger Corman-ish figure in Hong Kong in the way that, you know, he made low-budget movies. He had a great eye for talent, hungry young talent, and many stars came out of Eng Si Yoon. Eng Si Yoon was the guy that, well, we don't need to shoot in Hong Kong. Why don't we go shoot in Korea instead? Because it's 
is cheaper. That's a real like Roger Corman sh- shooting Puerto Rico kind of move. So for a number of years, Yoon Wu-Ping worked as a choreographer for Ang Si Yoon for the Shaw Brothers for various people. In 1978, Ang Si Yoon started his own company and Ang Si Yoon saw that there was this struggling young actor named Jackie Chan who had, hadn't quite found his niche, but he saw something in him. And Yoon Wu-Ping said that when he saw Jackie just do a few moves for him, he said, okay, there's a lot here that I can work with. So in his directorial debut, Snake and the Eagle Shadow, 1978, they just locked on to what Jackie was very good at and Yuwo Ping could do it in an incredibly efficient way that unfortunately the filmmakers that had been working with Jackie before and stuff like Half a Loaf of Kung Fu, they didn't have that kind of understanding of the genre that Yuwo Ping does. Half a Loaf of Kung Fu is one of the better of the early ones. It is, but it is a very formless one and the silliness kind of overpowers any of the martial arts. Yuwo Ping's directorial career really hits the ground running. The first is Snake and the Eagle's Shadow. The second is Drunken Master, which became an unprecedented hit in Hong Kong and one of my very favorite movies, honestly. I mean, Drunken Master is so good. It understands Jackie so well. It's packed with unforgettable action. It's lightning in a bottle. Yeah, there's no flab to it. And that no flab thing it's not the case all the time with Yu Wu Ping, but when it comes to all action choreographers as directors, I feel that he is number one when it comes to delivering the goods, when he jumps from kind of trend to trend and puts his own stamp on it. These early Yuan Wu Ping directorial movies, though, there's just something, I mean, they're, they're very cheap. They feel very spontaneous. There's this really rambunctious energy. They're quite crude and, and rude. Uh, <laughs> crude and crude rude. rude. Will Sloan, just, put it on the box. Just like Bart Simpson. Cowabunga. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of vulgar comedy, but just like unbelievable action choreography. After those two Jackie Chan films, they really oppressed Yu Wu Ping to continually kind of deliver on that premise. Like, give us another Jackie Chan. He tried with his brother Young Sheng Yi in uh, Dance of the Drunk Mantis. Didn't really take, unfortunately. I love Dance of the Drunk Mantis, though. Amazing movie. Yeah. Uh, and then they tried again with The Magnificent Butcher, and the logical extension of Jackie Chan is Samuel Hung. But the movie itself, while it's one that got a lot of play in North America, because it was released by Fox many years ago on DVD, I don't think it would be one of Yu Ping's best. It feels like what a film that everybody that's involved with it was making while doing five other films, as is the Hong Kong style. This is The Magnificent Butcher? Yes. I like Magnificent Butcher. I mean, it's good. I kind of don't have a lot to say about it, just because it's, it's kind of like any of the other ones from this period, you but know? But I feel that in this movie, how you talked about that Drunken Master's lightning in a bottle, you don't get that feeling of Sammo in this film. Yes, it feels like trying to recreate Drunken mm. Master. And they don't find the hook. Like, Drunken Master is so easy to explain to someone. Even Snake mm. and the Eagle Shadow is. While Magnificent Butcher is like so much stuff, it's formless. Will you be surprised to learn it was written by Wong Jing? And while the finale of Sammo Hung getting a bunch of styles against the bad guy. Great stuff. You don't have that like one drunken style that you can kind of you know, build upon. So it's mostly something that you would watch like, oh, that was really good. Even as an entire thing, it doesn't quite click in the way that I would say most Yu Wu Ping films do. When we talk about Hong Kong cinema a lot, especially action films, I feel there's a caveat of like, listen, these were made up on the spot. So they're kind of, you know, all over the place when you watch them. Even Jackie Chan's best films are like that. While Yu Wu Ping, it feels much more solid. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a delicate balance in Yu Wu Ping's best movies of they do 
do feel kind of like they were made up on the spot. Mm -hmm. Some of them do have an anything goes quality, but then they're all grounded in this incredible precision and discipline. They're not like, you know, you look at some of the bad Bruceploitation movies of the time and the fight scenes look like they were just made up on the spot in in the worst way. Mm -hmm. It's just people flailing around and throwing their fists until the the quota is reached. But the fights in a Yuan Wuping movie, consistently they have an idea and they tell a story. Yeah, that's them at their best. And I think those are at their most imaginative in the films that he made that are Yun clan movies, where he and his brothers all work together in front and behind the camera to bring to the screen. Now, technically, the first one is Dreadnought from 1981, and that is Sol classic. Uh, Yun Biu stars in it. One of, you know, the stars of Hong Kong action cinema. He worked a lot. Doesn't have that much North American fandom other than if you're a really hardcore Hong Kong guy. And Dreadnought is great because it's that beautiful Hong Kong, like, man, every action scene has an idea. It's also totally all over the map, going from comedy to, like, brutal violence. The film is a slasher picture. Mm -hmm. Basically a martial arts slasher. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't seen this one, highly recommend it, especially as a Yu Wuping directed vehicle. This week I watched The Miracle Fighters from 1982, which is another Yun Clan movie. Yeah, now, so this is a Yun Clan period that when they were all tripping on acid, man. I'm having trouble summarizing the plot of this one, which goes all over the place. Yeah, there's like a sorcerer's competition, which is how it ends. Yeah, it's kind of like it has a bit of the drunken master thing of like there are these two masters who are training a guy. But but what matters is there's lots of kooky stuff, especially in the last third of the movie where he's in this bizarre kind of dream space and there are snakes everywhere. And now in failing so hard at this episode, I don't know how to summarize an interview (laughs) with Yuo Ping. He said that Miracle Fighters took almost a year to shoot. Mm -hmm. And when you watch the movie, oh, I understand why that's the case. Because for us to, like, talk about, oh, there's a scene where there's, like, a 10-foot guy, wooden guy that fights someone, or they battle on ropes over pits of snakes, you're like, well, how would that exist? I mean, that scene is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so good. And it's just Yu Wo Ping, through just sheer understanding of what film can do, can bring all these impossible things to life. Not only put them on screen, make them exciting, and also very funny. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong comedy. Well, you know? they're not for us. Yeah, I, yeah, I 100% agree. But like, this is something that I thought about while watching Magnificent Butcher is that Sam Hong is not a particularly funny director. Like his his comedies, mm. I was like, oh, like Will said, it's not for me. But like the Yu Wu Ping films, I like very easily understand those comedic concepts because they're often very big, and it's the sheer kind of imagination that's on display that gets the laugh out of me. Yeah, there's there's a there's a beauty to the miracle fighters, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, there's also beauties of stuff like Shaolin Drunkard or Mm -hmm. Taoism Drunkard. I mean, back in the days where you would uh, stumble upon a website like badmovies.org, like, you could not escape the uh, chompy watermelon that is in, is it Shaolin Drunkard or Taoism Drunkard? Oh, God. I know I've seen it. I mean, they all mix together. I think it's Taoism Drunkard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just like this watermelon with teeth. It's like, Mm -hmm. and you're like, wait, what would that be? Well, you got to see the movie because it is indescribable beyond that just one blow line and the acceptance that Yu Wuping, he pulls it off. So one of the things that's most notable about Yu and Wuping was his, was and is his remarkable ability to adapt to the times. So in the mid 80s, you know, after that early Kung Fu comedy period, after the sort of fantastical period that included 
encompass the miracle fighters as well as some lesser efforts like close encounters of the vampire he transitioned to much harder edged action movies modern action movies in urban settings well that's after he tried to make someone the new Jackie Chan something about Yuval Ping you'll see throughout his career is that he'll kind of zone in on one actor and like try his best to make him a success and that actor was Donnie Yen because after that fantastical period he tried to redo the Jackie Chan thing with a film called Drunken Tai Chi starring Donnie as well as a movie called Mismatched Couples which will pop up every six months on Twitter someone will post the opening sequence of Donnie Yen breakdancing <laughs> a very young Donnie and it will go viral because it is bananas you know we once saw Donnie Yen speak and he talked about Mismatched Couples and he says there's a scene in that movie where uh, he threw himself into a concrete wall because that's what you do in the Hong mm-hmm. Kong film industry and he said he knew that it would lead to catastrophic consequences for him he did it anyway he's still feeling (laughs) the pain from throwing himself into a concrete wall 40 years later (laughs) he says he can't sleep on a particular side anymore yeah yeah can you imagine every time he feels that twinge he thinks of like mismatched couples oh yeah i mean a movie that is like towards the bottom of yuan wuping's letterbox (laughs) absolutely but does have the novelty of co-starring yuan wuping as donnie's master in the film so the tiger cage movies which are three actually unrelated Mm. crime dramas uh newly available on blu-ray from 88 films i watched the first one i was impressed by just kind of like how hardcore it is Mm. i think it's best summarized by a scene where early on donnie yen dies spoiler he gets shot in the middle of the forehead and then he turns around and blood is spewing like from between his eyes and he steps forward with a betrayed look on his eyes and then he of course gets blasted a few more times to go down and none of that is played for laughs no i mean you will ping jumps into this kind of john woo defined heroic bloodshed world and he brings his own style to it which includes verhoven style squibs every time someone gets shot in this it's like big and chunky and rips off most of their shirt and the sound effects i mean obviously in hong kong action movies the sound effects are always a little bit heavy mm-hmm. but like every gunshot is like a cannon blast in this movie and you will ping what he brings to these movies is his grounded style of choreography even though that it is urban and there's not a lot of wire work in it you just get that painful every time someone's thrown up in the air they're going to come crashing down on a table and or chair it's funny i do see the yuan wu ping in this but like his choreography style as distinctive as it is can be so wildly varied because mm. something like Iron Monkey is a whole different end of the spectrum from Tiger Cage. Like Tiger Cage, as you say, is is grounded. It's acrobatic. It's it's sort of wild and impressive, but it's not like Iron Monkey where there's so much wire work and there's that incredible scene towards the end where Donnie Yen is like fighting on just giant poles. pieces of wood yeah. and there's flames underneath them too. That's right. They're, they're jumping from pole to pole on top of this fiery pit. I mean, I'm not quite sure how to account for the auteur thing that links all of well, these Well, I think scenes. that Yu Ping just understands what kind of movies that he's making because if you watch a lot of like tiger cage style ripoff films that were released by you know countries like taiwan there will be that dissonance of like there's crazy wire work and everything is sped up and like you will ping knows that to make this movie work he doesn't need to do those things that he needs to find another way to express these action ideas this adrenaline and this involvement in the physical feats that you're seeing on screen and it's all there in tiger cage and it's also interesting that while unrelated tiger cage 2 is kind of him refining the process and 
and understanding, oh, okay, I don't have to do gun stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, Tiger Cage 2 is mostly the Donnie Yen show, in the same way that In the Line of Duty is a Cynthia Can Donnie Yen mostly fight film. Mm-hmm. That, like, he's moving away from guns, which, you know, he's very good at. He would also approach in his diehard ripoff Red Wolf that he made in 1995. But it's not really you get the sense the thing that he likes to work with the most he likes doing kind of the physicality of hand-to-hand or weapon style combat so i mean after the crime movies of the mid 80s he jumps on board the big kung fu revival of mm. the late 80s and early 90s which he pretty much kicked off with once upon a time in china uh, uh, one and two he worked a little bit on once upon a time in china basically he came in near the end and he's the one i believe who choreographed the jaw-dropping fighting on the ladders action scene which i mean that's a quintessential you and Wu Ping scene where it's grounded in one particularly great idea, mm-hmm. which is what if you had a fight scene with these gigantic ladders that keep rising and falling? And that's the thing that grounds like all these spectacular feats of agility. And it should be pointed out that Yu Wu Ping will admit that something like that climax in Once Upon a Time in China took like so long to shoot, like more than a month, I believe. While something like Drunken Master took, I don't know, 30, you know, 50 days, not that long, yeah. uh, relatively. I'm sure he had the same experience that Jackie Chan had in Hong in in Hollywood where they were all they were always amazed that the fight scenes would be filmed in like two days and the dialogue mm. scenes were supposed to be filmed in like 30 days you know? <laughs> yeah they're like wait 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 no it should be the opposite because that's yeah. why people come to these movies as you mentioned Will that with this new wave of essentially you know kind of wuxia that happened in the 90s this new style that was basically defined by two people Ching Su Tong and Choi Hark Ching Su Tong he brought this expressionist almost abstract idea to wuxia of the way that people move, the way that wire work is done. It had been done before in Shaw Brothers films, Taiwanese films, but it had never been done like you would see in stuff like Swordsman, Swordsman 2, and all the other Chui Hark, Ching Su Tung collaborations. And you feel in something like Iron Monkey that Yu Wu Ping is trying to figure out, okay, then what is my stamp on this? Mm-hmm. And what's cool about Iron Monkey is that it actually works in a context that if you're a North American viewer, you're like, I understand this. This is mass superhero stuff. Very simple, vigilante it makes sense why this is the one that Miramax went to when Yu Wolping had his craze and they're like, all right, which one should we re-release theatrically? And they went for Iron Monkey. Now, in the mid to late 90s, his directorial career kind of tapers off as he does more and more choreography for other people. And he's getting old, too. (laughs) He came back in 2010 with True Legend, uh, his first directorial effort in 15 years, which was based on the character of Beggar So, another folk hero who his father played in Drunken Master. Which uh, can also be seen in the Stephen Chow film, uh, King of the Beggars, which, will it surprise you, that film was choreographed by Yu Woping. Yu Woping is also the credited director on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. A very troubled production, I, and I think that the movie uh, shows that. I've actually never seen it. Not good, bad. Um, and he's also directed The Thousand Faces of Dunjia in 2017, which for a long time was being named as Miracle Fighters 2, but it's not, not really related. And in that film Lincoln Center interview, uh, Yu Woping is like, yeah, the first one better and, <laughs> like, yeah and, and more recently his most recent feature-length directorial credit master z the it man legacy with michelle Yeoh and dave batista uh, a lot of fun yeah you know? super fun and that 
sees him adapting to a new trend in Hong Kong and Chinese action movies, the Ip Man cycle. Mm -hmm. The idea of like, all right, we're grounding it back down to serious, not very jokey. Can you do this, Master Yun? And he's like, yeah, no problem. (laughs) And he does it. I think that, I mean, he said himself that he's worked with basically every action star that was in Hong Kong. And at this point, his career is filled with such gold and transcending stuff. He doesn't really need to be out there like making movies anymore. He's also 77. Yeah, has a passion for it. I mean, he's talked about on stuff like The Matrix that they gave him very specific storyboards of the action that they wanted. And he just went on on his own and just did what he wanted to do. When he showed it to the Wachowski sisters, they were like, yeah, that's good. Let's just do what you did. Mm -hmm. And supposedly that was a conflict with Kill Bill is that Quentin Tarantino had it down so much what he wanted in his mind that Yuwo Ping was like, why am I here? Okay, I'll train the cast, but this is... Like, why am I... I'm just training people? Like, is this all that you want me to do? I would say, in lieu of my ability to perfectly summarize what makes a Yuen Wu-Ping fight scene, I would just say that there are a very small number of filmmakers over the years who have been able to just crack open a rock and unleash pure cinematic pleasure out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's there with George Melier. Yeah, you know? absolutely. He's there with Busby Berkeley. He's a guy who, like, when you watch the movies, there's just something so uncomplicated about bodies moving on screen, you know? And everybody is following in his steed like a lot of the choreographers they would look at what Yuo Ping is doing and it's like okay he figured it out how can we do variations of this because this is clearly the best that it can ever get yeah when you think of Hong Kong action movies after 1980 you're thinking of him so as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from Andrew Brown and he goes dear Justin and Will Thanks for the solid free podcasting. I was curious about a quirk you two continually show whenever a film is over two hours. You're almost sure to complain. I think this is a misguided criticism. Not only is two hours a pretty average film length these days, but also each movie is differently paced and doesn't necessarily feel its length, whether long or short. Both of your letterbox accounts indicate love for some of these longer movies, so it seems inconsistently applied. Cheers, Andrew. Well, first of all, we're right on everything we say. Yeah, never wrong, mm-hmm. ever. Never go back on our opinions. <laughs> and I, I would also, just, I would just like to say, you know, people, people are always saying, oh, oh, oh you have, uh, they're you, trying you, to, you know, uh, gotcha. Yeah, they're, they're trying to do a generalized take on a, on a tendency that that we're, we have. But I just want to say, point me specific examples. What are specific examples of movies I said were too long that I was wrong to say that about? Because I bet you won't find any. I bet you won't find any. I think it comes down <laughs> to, it's true that most films are two hours long. So to complain now, to be like, ah, the good old days of 90-minute movies, it's like, nah, they're all two plus hours. Yeah, that's true. And I will also say there's lots of movies that I love that are more than two hours. Oh, yeah. Tons of them. I don't, th- I don't think we were here complaining when we watched Satan Tango that it was too long at seven hours. No, we complain when a movie could clearly be 90 minutes and it's two hours long. Speaking of which, on Patreon this week, we talk about Rob Zombie's The Monsters, mm-hmm. which at 110 minutes is <sighs> too way long. Way too long. And it's not just like we save half an hour in our lives, which that adds up. It's also, you know, once you move past the point of, why is this still going? You get the sense of like, that's what kind of drills into your mind because that's how you're ending the picture. By the way, I watched a couple episodes of the Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix show this week, 10 episodes. And I just want to say, 
every 10 episode miniseries should Too be long. should be a 110 minute movie. Okay. <laughs> I agree. It's like you're you're watching this fucking show and it's like, oh my god, am I gonna see every single thing you ever did? Are we mm-hmm. just gonna like sit here forever? Jesus Christ. Well, it comes down to the idea of like what is storytelling, right? Like what do you need as a viewer to kind of get the full picture and come away satiated? And I think 90 minutes, that's the time most of the time. And that's why RKO was right to cut 40 minutes out of the Magnificent Ambersons. Absolutely. And we're going to stand on that. They said 130 minutes, too long. And of course, some movies are need to be more than two hours long. Yeah, that's true. We're not saying that every movie needs to be under two hours. We're just saying most movies could be 90 minutes and you would not be hurt by it. <laughs> now, this is an issue that you get like at the screenwriting level that like it's not just like, oh, we have this much footage and we cut it down to 90 minutes because then you oftentimes get a completely incomprehensible film. Like I was recently watching a Hong Kong film that Troy Hart produced and it was released as a 90 minute version. And only now, 20 years later, did the two hour version come out and the two hour version makes way more sense mm-hmm. because it was written as a two-hour film did it need to be two hours no it didn't <laughs> like that's where you get into like the fine little details oh yeah sure and you know there are lots of movies that run two hours or more that just have like lots of uh interesting little digressions that you wouldn't want to lose that's mm-hmm. the tree of it you know oh so, yeah well, let's get uh, margaret down to 90 minutes right <laughs> let's get let's get it going let's uh let's take the thin red line and cut out all those scenes of little birds why and, uh... <laughs> do people like this letter writer feel the need to defend that though <laughs> like, if no, like first of all i'm defending this letter writer this okay. letter writer is a good person oh the they, best and they listen, listen to this podcast they listen to this podcast which makes them good it's happened before where i've written like ah the perfect length is 85 minutes people get like their hackles up like how dare you listen i'm not yeah we're not saying that good movies can't be two hours no many of them are yes citizen kane is 119 minutes and i'm telling you it flies by mm-hmm but most of, if we complain about a film being two hours or groan when we see a film is two hours, like it doesn't need to be that long. Listen, I, I, I do remember a very early episode of this podcast when we did Bradley Metzger and we did Camille 2000 and I looked at the back of the box and it said 130 minutes and I groaned. I thought, holy fuck, how can this be 130 minutes? Loved every minute of it. <laughs> so there you so go. So I can. I, I'm open minded. And I do react better usually to a film that is 85 minutes to a film that is two hours long. <laughs> like that is just the truth. When you see those Netflix films, do you know why they're that long? Because they calculated in minutes that they want like the minutes watched. I remember hearing about those Marvel TV shows, the Netflix ones that the producers were like, please let us do 10 episodes. And they're like, nope, you got to do more than 10. And they're mm-hmm. like, fuck, mm-hmm. like they didn't want to. They didn't have enough story for it. That's right, folks. That's what you're defending. Yeah. <laughs> All the minutes that you spend in front of the screen you know what this letter writer he got us he got us we're, we're, we're hypocritical we like some two-hour movies <laughs> so thank you very much for that letter and our next letter is from alex s and he goes hey fellas i was wondering if you have any particular thoughts on director nick millard i've only seen a handful of his films so far his classic criminally insane the dream like satan's black wedding on par with some of the best ed wood if you ask me and the truly baffling mac 10 at least that's what the credits say. The version I saw online is improbably tagged as Gun Blast, which sounds like a hoot, but is unfortunately nowhere to be found. As far as singular inept filmmakers go, I found his work to be reminiscent of what little Dorish Wishman titles I've seen, to the extent that I wonder if they were acquainted. All the best, and thanks for all the work you do. I've lost count on the number of cinematic tangents your show has sent me on. Ah, well, thank you very much for that letter. And Nick Millard is a filmmaker I am only aware of, thanks to Ben Ruffett of Hamilton Trash Cinema. 
because Nick Millard was a guy that did a lot of VHS movies and also has a fascinating history and filmography where he started shooting films on celluloid and as he went along he would recycle these celluloid films and reuse them in his shot on video ones which creates an incredibly all over the place feel to his pictures and he's also a very particular individual if you read more about him he did some hardcore pornography but he's mostly famous for the horror films that he made and i believe didn't he do crazy fat ethel is one of his yeah that's one of his so as i was looking at nick millard's letterbox page it said i'd watched one out of 30 of his movies and i thought really which which one was it well it's a movie from 1971 called fancy lady it stars ushi degard from the russ meyer films so that will tell you what kind of movie it is it's a soft core uh, movie where she's topless a lot reading my review i didn't seem all that enthusiastic about it <laughs> But I don't know. He looks like a great subject for further research. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is one that should have been on the list, and I just didn't really think about it that much. His films, I don't see them get talked about that much because they are very difficult pictures mm -hmm. in the sense of like sitting through them. I see. But uh, we love that kind of stuff, and we will definitely tackle it at some point. So thank you very much for reminding us. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So next week... <laughs> Shocked over! <laughs> Which means that we're doing horror films all month long. And we're going to be starting off with a little man named Boris Karloff. The king of horror. My God, how have we never got to Boris Karloff yet? I thought we had. And then when you told me that we had, and I was like, huh, I guess we did. We did Vincent Price. We did Christopher Lee. Wait, did we do Christopher Lee? No, we haven't done Christopher Lee. Uh, I feel like we've just done all of these horror guys. So, yep, Boris Karloff is one that there's a lot to talk about. Had a very uh, long career where he just would not stop working. So, which Are we going to watch those Mexican ones? Yeah, the, yeah, where he's like on a, uh, on a respirator. Ventilator, yeah. <laughs> uh, which ones do you think we should watch, Will? Well, you know, maybe we should watch Frankenstein. Mm. Just I, I feel like just because like it's the key one. It's the, mm -hmm. the Rosetta Stone of them all. And we should, we'll look at his filmography. He had a lot of horror films that he made. So I feel like there's other stuff in there that we... Companies we... have put out like various collections of him. And I know there's one called, I think, The Man They Couldn't Hang that's supposed to be kind of mm -hmm. good. I don't know. So we will be checking those out. I don't think we'll be revisiting Targets again, will we? Nah, what's... I mean... What else do we have to say about Targets? We, we, we'll talk about it, obviously, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, he's great in it. There's yeah. nothing else to say. So we'll be talking about the gentleman monster himself next week. And until then, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder here that we will be having our annual Important Cinema Club 24-hour horror movie Mind Melter online this October 29th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And for more details, just check my Twitter page, DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. I would also like to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Keenan Ashenfelter, Graham Paul Donovan, Fighting Forwards, Adam Stewart, Michael Davies, Jerry Lally, Lucy Sherry, Caleb Clements, Calvin Vaughn, Ted Rowland, Ruben Vasquez, Coasters Galore, and Joseph DeLeo. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not continue to do this without you. 
And now, back to your regular scheduled programming. Will went to the Review Cinema to see a little Brian De Palma movie. Yeah, I saw Femme Fatale on 35mm. That was one of Brian De Palma's last high-profile releases, I think it's fair to say. Can what are I... you talking about? You don't think that... Not redacted. 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 Yeah. yeah, there was Femme Fatale in 2002, and then The Black Dahlia in 2006. I, I saw think. that one theatrically, so I... that was a big major film. I've still never seen It's bad, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, Vilmos Sigmund got an Oscar nomination for it. I guess it was a hard year and you know Vilmos was probably on his last legs and they're not going to give it to him for Jersey Girl so they had to find something. It was that or the Mindy Project. <laughs> yep, that's right. You know, I had seen Femme Fatale some years ago and I wasn't really that hot on it. At the time I sort of thought it was like, oh, this is kind of for the fans only. You know, this is... <laughs> you hadn't seen uh, uh, Passions yet that he made? Ugh. Well, I'll just say that I had a very good time watching Femme Fatale this week. Very fun. When you watch that movie, you kind of just got to appreciate the pure style of it. You know, it's one of those pure cinema movies that they let De Palma just do whatever he wanted clearly oh that yeah he was at a point where the studio was like yeah sure uh, De Palma whatever you, you give us we'll put it out that's cool it feels kind of like a dream that movie you know <laughs> there's like a weird dream logic to it I mean it literally ends with it being all a dream oh yeah that's right <laughs> you don't yeah. even remember <laughs> that's right it does end with it being all a dream but it could be it could be reality yeah you don't know I mean multiple De Palma films end that way I mean, so for the first half of the movie I was totally lost about mm. what the plot was I mean, you're like just happy to be at the Cannes Film Festival, right? <laughs> yeah, it was 2001 Cannes Film Festival. Presumably, everyone's going in to see Shrek. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the jurists are arguing about if the donkey should get an award of some kind. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that opening scene at the Cannes Film Festival where it's playing to, I mean, not Bolero, but music like Bolero. Pure style, very vigorous filmmaker. I mean, you've been someone who's been kind of De Palma agnostic for a long time. I, I suppose so. I mean, well, he doesn't, you know, hit me he, where I live. Where he doesn't get your, yeah, <laughs> your loins going. Well, in this one, he sure did. Let yeah, me tell you. Boy. Yeah, was, uh... How was it watching it with an audience? Do you feel they were appreciating it? Were they like laughing? laughing at it or with it? I sensed a mixed reaction to the audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, talking to Brendan, the programmer, after he was saying that, like, somebody was telling him, like, how much he liked it, but his friend really didn't like it. Mm -hmm. Like, I, some the person behind me said something like, God, that was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Like, I, I, I love when people say that because you want to be like, you have not seen enough movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. Femme <laughs> yeah. Fatale directed by Brian De Palma is the worst movie you've ever seen? No movie with Rebecca Romaine can be the worst movie you've ever seen. But anyway, you know, it was great to see on film it was great to it was great to sort of see a movie like that in a theater and just be trapped with it go on that dreamscape journey with him now i was surprised that somebody else i know that never goes to movies also saw femme fatale so i wonder if there's like a weird pull to it the idea of like oh it's late period brian de palma that he is very you know famous and this is one of his last kind of big movies and that gets people through the door yeah i mean there were lots of people i knew at that screening i think it's just there were certain screenings like right thing at the right time where brian de palma is very trendy with film people right now. Is he now? Like, it feels like he's been trendy with people for the last, like, two decades. Certainly not when this movie came out. No, not when this movie came but out. But yeah, for the last probably 10 years, mm -hmm. his stock has been getting higher and higher and higher you know it was on film which is an increasingly rare thing here in toronto you know we don't get as many 35 screenings i didn't even know that the review could do 35 millimeter print screenings apparently they can because <sighs> unfortunately i spoke to uh, a theater manager 
of a place that used to show 35 and they're like yeah it needs to be like repaired and it's just not financially viable to do so for the few screenings that we're going to do so it's nice to see that the review still can i don't even know can the royal still it used to be able to but i don't think that the owners care about that now i mean the royal isn't even a movie theater anymore no it's like an entertainment venue pray to god the light box just stays in business forever because which it might not (laughs) no one can see the face that i'm making but uh pray to god it does because they're the the last bastion of of a place where you can still pretty consistently see film the thing is that like 35 millimeter projection is so difficult that it's not just like wheeling in a 60 millimeter projector setting it up you need two gigantic projectors the bulbs are so bright that you need crazy ventilation systems to like make it go out so it doesn't like all catch fire well so no disrespect for the person who did the projection at femme fatale because Mm. like it's actually quite hard to do now like there were a couple of real changes that were a little bit dodgy Mm. Um, so like the framing was a little off yeah the framing was a little off and and it was just like not entirely a seamless transition i'm not saying this out of disrespect for the person who projected it because I mean, they probably never do 35 millimeter prints well, anymore well exactly and like i my hat is off to anybody who will project it and will do the hard work of sitting there in the projection booth to do it but it just it just reminded me of like this used to be a skill that like 10 teenagers at every mall theater in america were, were doing yes and now i mean when when the hateful eight came out a couple years ago mm-hmm. and there was a 75 millimeter roadshow engagement of that i mean there were horror stories from just all over the continent of theaters fucking it up because well, nobody know. fucking knew and, and there was only that movie only came out like five years after avatar you know <laughs> yeah. like and avatar being the thing that killed exactly. all the uh celluloid projectors i mean we always have the mahoning drive-in they're never going to go digital they said and that they'll always have the 35 millimeter projectors ready to run and yeah now clearly this is now going to be a thing where eventually like you know within 10 years they're not even going to be doing these in toronto anymore like these rare ones and and like i'll be building my calendar around road trips to rochester and pennsylvania <laughs> where i can see the last few 35 millimeter projections yeah the nitrate film festival they won't show nitrate anymore they'll just be the celluloid festival remember this they don't show this anymore well they'll show they'll call it the silver screen film festival and they'll play a dvd of like (laughs) gold diggers of 1933 (laughs) and the 80 year old will sloan on oxygen he'll enjoy it yeah and drift into peaceful forever and i'll be like oh dvd remember that Instead of it projected in one second as a hollow pill right into your mind. <laughs> <laughs>